The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, July 12th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, Hillary Clinton locked up a coveted demographic with which she was struggling. Male college-educated septuagenarian Jewish New Englanders who were once Head Start teachers and have an ice cream named after them. Okay, it's a demographic of one. But that demographic was Bernie Sanders, and today he endorsed Hillary Clinton. This has been a weird political season, not just for endorsements, but for the definition of endorsement. I endorse, but I won't campaign. I back him, but I'm not endorsing him. Already Bernie said that he would vote for Hillary, but the endorsement took a little more. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is probably as subtle as the difference between how Bernie looked and how Hillary looked when Bernie said these words. Secretary Clinton has won the Democratic nominating process. He, frown lines, nodding a bit glumly, emoting, yes, it's the inescapable truth. Her, beaming, smiling not just with the mouth, but with the eyes, emoting, yippee. This was a handoff from a man who symbolized hope to millions to a woman who was married to a man from Hope and served under the man who campaigned on Hope, but lives more on the intersection of qualified and practical in a neighborhood that's Hope adjacent. Some real estate agents call it Hope Terrace or Hope Gardens, but the zip code will tell you it's not actually Hope. But this was a handoff. And as in all handoffs, some touching must go on. That touching occurred right after this point. And I am proud to stand with her today. Thank you all very much. So Bernie goes in for a handshake. Seems like it could have been a warm handshake. But Hillary wants no part of it. She goes for the full hug. Bernie tries to maintain enough bodily distance to fit, say, something the thickness of the Goldman Sachs transcripts. Maybe you could hear what Hillary actually says. She says, that was great. That was so great. You couldn't hear what Bernie thought, which was something like, free college. You're welcome. Thank me for that someday. Oh, boy. And somewhere off in the distance, a New York pseudo-billionaire thought about some snide tweets. A former Mormon governor of Massachusetts cursed his bad timing. And Martin O'Malley asked an aide, are you sure I have no chance? Can we call a superdelegate? On the show today, I spiel about how the definition of public service has come to mean dicking around with Zika funding. But first, there is an election coming up. You'd better learn how to decode those political ads. So now let us continue with our ongoing coverage of what's happening at the Toledo Museum of Art. You know the Toledo Museum of Art. Per capita, more people visit the Toledo Museum of Art than any museum other than the Smithsonian. Is that true, Adam, by the way? Second most visited art museum per capita in America behind the National Gallery in D.C. There you go. And that's Adam Levine, the associate director. And in case you were saying, I'm a fairly regular listener to the gist, you have ongoing coverage of the Toledo Museum of Art. We really don't, but maybe we're instituting it now as we ask Adam to uh, join us on the show and talk about his new exhibition, which is called I Approve This Message, Decoding Political Ads. Hello, Adam. Hello, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. So decoding. 
coding, but also art. Art supposed to display. What's the difference between display and decode? The answer to that actually requires that I talk a little bit about the Toledo Museum of Art ah, for your visitors who don't good. know well, about it. Well, we have an ongoing series, apparently. Well, that's it. hopefully this is the first of many. Most people won't know about the museum because, frankly, most people haven't been to Toledo. But when the Toledo Museum of of art was founded in 1901. Toledo was one of America's great cities. There were actually articles in the Chicago Tribune about whether or not Toledo would usurp Chicago's place as the great city of the Midwest. In fact, to underline your point, there were even (laughs) articles in the Toledo Blade asking if Chicago could ever rival Toledo. Amen. Um, uh, and we're very fortunate to have Block Communications as a sponsor for I Approve This Message, owner of the Toledo Blade. Oh, wow. So Toledo's uh, wealth was founded on the glass industry, and the Toledo Museum of Art is one of the five great art collections in North America. It is one of the best museums in the world, uh, and it collects masterpieces. Um, It's this astonishing oasis set on 36 acres um, in downtown Toledo. Uh, So it doesn't necessarily stand to reason that we would do an exhibition on political advertising, um, because political advertising, presidential television advertising, no less, is not fine art. But we believe really strongly that a museum full of masterpieces is a mausoleum unless you activate those works of art in meaningful and relevant ways. So our entire value proposition is not come to the museum and engage with great works of art. It's come to the museum and learn how to see by engaging with great works of art. Because learning to see, although we teach methods that are derived from art history, those methods are applicable in any walk of life. It just so happens that through this exhibition, we are looking at a swing county and a swing state, um, which is where the Toledo Museum of Art is located in Lucas County, and applying our methodologies to understanding political ads. So is there a parallel to other works of art, to paintings? Is there a way to look at a Caravaggio and see maybe the uh, fruit rotting in the foreground and liken that to something going on in a political ad that you might not notice it at first glance? Yep. So that's exactly, exactly it, Mike. So... There are different levels of analysis, and we actually have broken down our method of looking into six steps. And for anyone who's interested, we have a a website dedicated just to teaching our approach to learning how to see. That set of skills is called visual literacy, um, and our website is vislit, V-I-S-L-I-T dot org. What you just described, say, the Caravaggio-esque painting technique, that's a level of formal analysis, but there are actually deeper levels of analysis that are based on symbolism based on how you reconcile your personal memories with what you're seeing. Um, and what we do in this ad, is we, or in this exhibition, is we take the same exact process that you would undertake to understand a painting or a sculpture and apply it to presidential television advertising from 1952 to 2012. Is this to say that the ads in your exhibition worked? Lots of money is spent on presidential television advertising. That is in part because they all work. Um, Some are more effective than others, and we have definitely tried to highlight what we view as the most effective. There are about 70 ads that are in the exhibition, but all ads in some way, shape, or form cause you to remember a candidate, um, and more important and really central to this exhibition, to feel an emotion. A good ad causes the viewer to not say, oh, I really agree with the candidate on that issue, but to feel a particular way about the candidate or his or her rival. And it's that emotion, which as a lot of research um, has demonstrated to us over the past couple of decades, it's emotion that helps us make decisions. Um, and voting is no different. Voting just happens to be a political decision. 
So give us an idea. So as you're talking about how ads affect us emotionally and what they're trying to say, can you pick one, a recent one that we might be familiar with, maybe one from 2012 or thereabouts, and talk about some stuff that's going on that we might not even have realized? Sure. So the way the exhibition is broken up is we have five different theaters, and four of those theaters are dedicated to what we generally speaking, right, using some curatorial license, um, think are the four driving emotions behind electoral decision-making. And this is grounded in some research done mostly out of the University of Michigan and out of Stanford. And those emotions are anger, hope, pride, and fear. And of course, pride and hope are more related to each other than fear and anger are to those two. But there's sort of these two pairings, um, anger and fear and hope and pride. When think, thinking about more recent, um, more recent ads uh, from 2012, I would say if we look at anger in particular, different campaigns are typified by different emotions. Um, but certainly in the exhibition, there are more recent ads from anger, and we actually we've divided the anger theater into ads that display either outrage or evoke outrage, that evoke disgust, or that evoke contempt. And uh, probably the most successful of the ads, in my view, um, was Obama's Big Bird ad. Um, I don't know if you remember it, Mike. It was about Mitt Romney talking about uh, defunding PBS. Defunding PBS, right, and comparing that to the ongoing financial crises in the country, the Wall Street, Main Street divide, um, and talking about how the fat cats were getting away with things while Big Bird, the real enemy, needed to be stopped in his tracks. One man has the guts to speak his name. Big Bird. Big Bird. Big Bird. It's me, Big Bird. Big, yellow, a menace to our economy. Mitt Romney knows it's not Wall Street you have to worry about. It's Sesame Street. I'm going to stop the subsidy to PBS. Mitt Romney taking on our enemies no matter where they nest. It's not just the derision in the narrator's voice that causes you to feel real contempt. Mm. Um, It's actually the use of the shots themselves, the fading um, from bright color to sepia tones for the evil, quote-unquote, fat cats, um, and the um, innocence and naivete of Big Bird that's juxtaposed with it. Um, So it's a really compelling ad because it leverages... uh, bright color, it leverages um, sarcastic tone, and a play on music, as the music sort of has this foreboding but sarcastic feel once we turn to Big Bird. So it, it combines all of these elements, sound and image, to create what's a really compelling feeling of disbelief that a candidate could have priorities that seem to be aligned in a very particular way that aren't necessarily the same as the rest of the American public. Yes, I remember when Mitt Romney said that, and I thought, oh, there's going to be an ad, but you don't realize until you see that ad what he's playing with, because Big Bird, I mean, the genius of Jim Henson is to make all these Muppets like Cookie Monster, Kermit, Big Bird. They're all one color, one bright color. And then when you contrast it with beiges and browns and dark colors, you lose. You lose when you scrape, when you get into a fight with, with a Muppet. That's exactly right. So if we were to think about Caravaggio to the example you used before, part of what made him such a successful artist was his variation between absolute light and absolute darkness in his compositions. So again, if we wanted to tie back the dissection of these things to art, we're ultimately using the same methodologies, but we're applying them to a very different subject matter.
And by the way, I think all political ad makers are like Caravaggio, possible spies, definite scoundrels, like likely to die in a bar fight. Um, um, I, I will tell you that my boss here, the director of the Toledo Museum of Art, was the assistant director in the National Gallery of Ireland at the time that they found the lost Caravaggio, and he plays a central role in that story. So he is, uh, he is an expert on the scoundrelness of uh, Caravaggio. I love it. So you mentioned hope, fear, anger, pride, and then as a subgenre discussed, these are almost all of the inside out emotions and no the guys from Pixar were going for you know psychologists say these are main emotions but left out is joy does hope become joy in politics or is there really no place for joy in political ads so that's a terrific question so yes people tend to be pining for a future um, and so its manifestation in our view the curator's view um, is that that manifests mostly as as hope in presidential television advertising pride is intimately related but of course, so much, of, so many of these ads evoke patriotism, and patriotism rolls up to pride more ne- neatly than it rolls up to joy. Um, so, like any categorization, it's imperfect, um, but we think that it captures more variation than not. Well, pride's also a sin, as well as uh, in some ways a virtue. What about sadness? Where'd sadness go? So sadness, uh, sadness is in here, but sadness, and this is this is where the research gets interesting. Sadness isn't a motivational emotion. Um, so the purpose of these ads is to cause people to want to vote not to languish in despair um, so sadness tends to be morphed even when it's introduced into anger um, anger is a much more effective call to action than sadness i tend to think do you i tend to think that maybe you've chosen the great political ads but in general your average political ad is it just seems a decade behind the state of the art in advertising no political ad is as sophisticated as even a decent nike ad there are people in the world of advertising who are doing amazing things in terms of making arguments and a lot of political ads are clunky and use the same tropes and you know they're more like car commercials what do you think yeah so i think that there are two ways to view that so i think if you take the historical perspective that's not entirely true. So when the first ads were introduced, when Eisenhower came out with I Like Mike and Man from Abilene in 1952, now admittedly, it was 1952, but the technology was still pretty cutting edge. The reason that the ads were introduced in the first place is because there were enough televisions in homes. Um, that's, the, that's the tipping point for uh, an entire market uh, to exist for advertising. So it was fairly advanced. Um, and then Nixon and Reagan in particular were known for leveraging their connections um, and leveraging Madison Avenue talent. So some of, some of those ads are not just iconic in the history of presidential television advertising, but also extraordinary ads. I think you're seeing a shift in the quality or maybe let's call it the cinematographic quality of ads, um, particularly um, as uh, we move away from television, which we do nod to in the show um, towards a future that is um, that is more driven by the Internet. Although even in this campaign, more money will be spent on television advertising than on any other form. Um, but broadly speaking, the ads aren't there to be read as films. They're there to cause people to feel emotion. So whether or not they look as polished as a Nike ad, if they succeed in making you feel an emotion, then they have been successful. Or another example, 
there's a great ad called Kennedy Jingle, where they just repeat Kennedy's name over and over and over, singing it in a jingle, showing sign after sign after sign. Now, you could argue that's a really ineffective ad, but it causes you to feel joyful. And there is no way that when Kennedy was running as a relative unknown, you could forget Kennedy's name after the ad. We've all seen ads that we think are terrible ads, but we talk about them and we remember them. So from the ROI perspective, a successful work were they? Probably much more successful than they seemed as a viewing experience. To that I say, Salito and Barnes, injury attorney, one 888 This is a New York one, but anyone in New York knows that. Well, I'm a born and raised New Yorker, <laughs> so I know that one really well. <laughs> um, so does it fill you with pride? Does it fill you with disgust? Does it fill you with anger that you've launched this exhibition the exact time when political ads have ceased to be important in politics? He said, overstating his case knowingly. I, so I don't think that's the case. Um, so part of the reason we're doing this now is because we think it's incredibly topical. Um, so I, I, as I Although mentioned... Although Donald it, Trump did not take out one ad in June. Uh, PACs did, other people did, but Trump, major candidate, went dark for a month. That's never happened before. That is, that is true. But as you see, or as you just mentioned, other organizations, other support organizations did take out ads. And that's going to continue. And the reason that's going to continue, particularly at least through this election cycle, but I would suspect in the amounts of billions of dollars going forward, is because they are effective. Now, whether or not they're provided by the candidate is more a reflection on the changing nature of politics today than it is on the efficacy of these ads and stirring emotion. That would be my contention. Adam Levine is the associate director of the Toledo Museum of Art. The new exhibition, I Approve This Message, Decoding Political Ads, plays from mid-July through November at that apparently amazing museum. Adam, thank you so much. You're rocketing up my Adam Levine ratings as we speak. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. And now the spiel. I want to play you a clip from the floor of Congress a couple days ago. Senator Harry Reid speaking. Let's play this game. The game is... What's the bill in question? All right, listen to Democratic Senator Harry Reid. Listen to what he says, and then ask yourself, what's the bill in question? Now, there's a prohibition now in the law that says that you can't fly the Confederate flag on our military cemeteries. 
let's take that away. We want to be able to fly Confederate flags on military cemeteries. So they put that in there too. All right. Is the bill in question about flying Confederate flags or more broadly, maybe it's about First Amendment rights, maybe military funding? Nope. The bill is about Zika. That Confederate flag provision is in the bill that would, but actually won't, fight Zika. Also in the bill are other what Democrats call poison pills. Primarily the provision that no funding to fight Zika be given to Planned Parenthood, even though Planned Parenthood is a major provider of contraception. And contraception is quite essential in preventing the birth of children with microencephalitis. Now, if you're a pro-Planned Parenthood Democrat, you would certainly be annoyed by this provision that disallows funding of Planned Parenthood. But would it be enough for you to vote against the entire bill? I'm honestly asking here. I don't know if you notice, but in this space, I often give my opinions. Here, I just want to raise some questions. If you were a pro-Planned Parenthood Democrat, you might say, I'd like Planned Parenthood to get funding to fight this horrific disease. That's because I think it is the best way to fight this horrific disease. But I'd also know there are numerous instances where abortion politics dictates that the best solution isn't the solution that becomes law. You know about the Hyde Amendment restricting federal funds for abortion. You know about the Mexico City rule, which says no funding can go to any international charities, even if they fight disease or overpopulation, if any of those funds go towards abortion. And of course, the disingenuousness of some of the Republicans would drive you crazy. Like when John Cornyn, the bill's major sponsor, asserts this. And most of the things that the Democratic leader raised in terms of objections to this conference report are just figments of his imagination. There is no mention of Planned Parenthood in this conference report. True. The specific noun, Planned Parenthood, isn't mentioned. What is mentioned is the mandate that all funding is walled off from family planning clinics. Planned Parenthood happens to be a family planning clinic. Even Breitbart didn't get the memo, hey, pretend that Planned Parenthood isn't mentioned in this bill at all, because their headline was, Democrats still blocking anti-Zika bill over Planned Parenthood funding and EPA restrictions. EPA, that's a part of it too, but Compared to Confederate flags and Planned Parenthood, I mean, we are talking about killing mosquitoes. Maybe there is some argument about pesticides, though I do understand why the Democrats don't give the Republicans credit for being fair actors over the pesticide provision. I want to put the pesticides aside. I want to talk about Confederate flags and Planned Parenthood. But this gets me to a frustration. So much of this coverage has been framed this way. Washington Post, Zika funding stalls in the Senate amid partisan rift. LA Times, a shameful partisan battle over Planned Parenthood threatens crucial bill. Funding to combat the Zika virus is now in limbo after the Senate voted along party lines, blocking a $1.1 billion proposal to fight the virus. Well, it is partisan. It's not not partisan. Is the word partisan, though, the best adjective to describe to readers what this fight's about? Or is it a word that's actually the least descriptive while still not being technically inaccurate? Doesn't it lead the member of the lay public who's not reading every detail of every story or every detail of every bill, just the regular person to say, goddamn Congress, so dysfunctional. It's Congress's fault. Is it really Congress's fault or is it one side in Congress? That, by the way, was a rhetorical question. I do think it is one side in Congress. The overall question that I'm asking you to think what you would do as a Democrat, that's a real question. I would have headlined those articles something like Dems rebuff Zika bill 
after Confederate flag other provisions stuffed inside. I think you can have a legitimate argument about who's more in the wrong. I mean, maybe Democrats are making the perfect or at least the Confederate the enemy of the good. Or maybe it's Republicans for dicking around with Zika funding. But that's not the hypothetical I am asking you, my listener, to choose. I assume that most of this audience thinks Planned Parenthood should be eligible for Zika funding. Oh, but even if you think that, is that enough to thwart all the funding altogether? The Republicans control both houses. Elections have consequences. They get to some extent have their way on these issues. They have genuine beliefs about abortion. Combating abortion is a campaign promise they make to their voters and exclude Excluding Planned Parenthood from the fight weakens the fight a bit, but it doesn't destroy the fight. Voting against this bill means that no extra funding is going to fight Zika. As far as the Confederate flag, is cloth, even hateful cloth, enough to zero out funding specifically for Zika? Don't you, as a legislator, owe more to people who you could keep out of cemeteries than the people already in cemeteries? It's all an interesting question. It's a depressing, frustrating, interesting question. It's a curious matter to ponder. A few hundred babies will be deformed as we dither and ponder this compelling, compelling conundrum. Because we have the scientific means to try to combat a scourge unless the scourge is dirty politics. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson refuses to apply antiseptic to a cut unless Go Tell Aunt Rhody has made the state song of Rhode Island. Steve Lichtai, executive producer for Slate Podcasts, will not insulate his attic before the American League has a designated hitter. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, refuses to wear a bike helmet until which time there's an official stamp honoring both Willie Tyler and Lester the gist. Sure, we'll properly ground our cables when jumping a car, as soon as you properly admit that MASH was kind of overrated in later seasons. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.